and welcome to the third episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. My name is Anna Pertoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. I have with me Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team, as well as Ajay Mahotra, who's a senior associate in the disputes team. You can probably hear the birds outside as well. In the first episode of this series, back in February, which may seem like a lifetime ago, we discussed disclosure and privilege. In the second edition, we focused on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this time, we're going to be looking at developments in disclosure and privilege since our February update, as well as some developments relating to costs and funding. You'll find links on the podcast page to our blog posts on all of the cases we're going to discuss. So no need to take any notes. So I'll start us off with some cases relating to legal professional privilege, which you might say is the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to case law. Although there are four cases I want to cover, they're really about two topics. First, the question of when referring to a privileged document will result in a wider waiver of privilege. And secondly, the extent to which a client of a regulated party, in these cases, an audit client, may find that its privileged material has to be disclosed to the regulator and who gets to decide what can be withheld on grounds of privilege. So, first of all, the question of waiver. As many of you will know, if you rely on privileged material to support your claim, the principle of collateral waiver or the cherry-picking rule may be engaged and you may be required to disclose other privileged material relating to the same issue or transaction. This is to avoid the court and the opposing party being given a partial view which might lead to unfairness. We've had two High Court decisions on this principle in the past month or so, which may seem to pull in opposite directions, but actually I think that they are reconcilable. Uh, The first decision, two renewables and Reeves, was given in the context of a security for costs application. The defendant argued that the claimants after the event insurance policy didn't give adequate security because there was a risk that it might be avoided for fraud if the claims were found to be exaggerated, which in effect the defendant suggested was likely because it said the claimant's liquidators couldn't possibly believe the figure claimed, which was 19.5 million. The liquidator responded with evidence which explained that EY had been instructed to prepare a preliminary valuation, referred to the methodology used and said that the figure claimed was derived from EY's valuation and therefore the liquidator was confident that the quantum of the claim was soundly based. The EY report was of course subject to litigation privilege but the defendant argued that privilege had been waived because it was deployed in support of the claimant's position. The judge held that privilege hadn't been waived. He referred to a distinction drawn in a number of cases between reliance on the content of a privileged document and reliance on its effect, so that uh, if it's only the effect that's relied on, there won't be a waiver. Here, the judge was satisfied that the liquidator was referring only to the effect of the report, so namely the effect on the liquidator's state of mind, in answer to the allegation that he couldn't possibly believe the figure claimed in the action. 
I think it's important here that the court found the report was being used only for a narrow purpose of rebutting the allegation that the liquidators could not have believed the plea did quantum and the underlying merits of the claim weren't engaged. So it was in that context that the judge drew the distinction between the content and effect of the report and it's not at all clear that he would have decided the case the same way if the liquidators were referring to the report to support the underlying merits. The second decision I want to look at on this point is from the PCP and Barclays case. A central allegation in that case is that certain advisory services agreements entered into by the bank were shams. In the bank's witness statements and opening statement, there were various references to legal advice, for example saying that the individuals took comfort from and adhered to the lawyer's advice. Mr Justice Waxman referred to what he called the vexed question in the law of privilege as to the distinction between the effect of the legal advice and its content. And he interpreted effect for these purposes as meaning the conclusion reached by the legal advice rather than its detailed contents. And said, if this is the intended distinction, then it can't be applied mechanistically to determine whether there's been a waiver. Instead, the question of waiver is an acutely fact-sensitive exercise, bearing in mind whether there is reliance, the purpose of that reliance, and the particular context of the case. In this case, the judge thought it was clear there had been reliance on the advice to support the bank's case as to the nature of the transactions, essentially on the basis that if the lawyers advised they were lawful, it was less likely they should be regarded as shams. Although arguably the reference was only to the effect of the advice in the sense of its conclusion rather than its detailed content, that didn't mean there couldn't be a waiver. One interesting aspect of the decision is that the privileged material referred to in the bank's evidence was in fact no longer privileged by the time it was referred to. The bank had provided the material to the SFO on a limited waiver basis and it had been used in a prior criminal trial, so it had entered the public domain and was no longer privileged. But the judge said that didn't matter. Just because the documents had lost their privileged status didn't mean the bank could deploy them without fear of a wider loss of privilege. The result was that the bank had to disclose any further privileged material relating to the alleged sham transactions, including any instructions to the lawyers and any advice received. So I think both of those cases demonstrate the dangers of relying on privileged material. You certainly can't assume that just because you're referring to the effect or conclusion of legal advice rather than its detailed content, you'll be immune to the possibility of a wider waiver. I think the key distinction really is going to be why you're relying on the material. If it's just a narrow point which doesn't go to the merits of the case, as, as in the first case I talked about, uh, two renewals and reeve, then the court may find there's no further waiver, or if there is, it doesn't extend very far. But if there's reliance to support the underlying merits of the case, the result may be to open the door on a much broader range of privileged material. Moving on then to my next topic, which I can take more quickly, 
That's the interaction between a regulatory investigation and the privilege which belongs to the clients of the person under investigation. I want to look briefly at two cases, both involving the Financial Reporting Council, FRC, which regulates accountants and auditors in the UK. In Sports Direct and FRC, the Court of Appeal held that a regulator cannot demand production of an underlying client's privileged documents unless the regulator's statutory powers override privilege. That may sound unsurprising, but the High Court had in fact found that the underlying client's privilege wouldn't be infringed by having to produce the privileged documents to its auditor's regulator, essentially on the basis that the client wasn't being investigated and the documents couldn't be used against that client. Now, that decision caused some concern, particularly in contexts where the regulated person and its client share the same regulator. So it's welcome that the Court of Appeal has overturned the decision and reinforced the protection of privilege in the regulatory context. In the Sports Direct decision, the FRC's notice to produce the documents was served on the underlying client. In the last decision I want to mention, A and B, there was again a notice served by the FRC, but this time on the auditor under investigation. The documents covered by the notice included a number of privileged documents of the audit client, which had been provided to the auditor in the course of the audit under a limited waiver of privilege. It was accepted that if the documents were actually privileged, then they wouldn't have to be produced. But the question was who got to determine whether they should be withheld on that basis if the client said certain documents were privileged, but the auditor didn't agree that there was a valid basis for claiming privilege. The upshot of the decision is that it's the party served with the notice, in this case the auditor, that has to make the determination since it is under the obligation to disclose. The court assumed that the auditor would engage with its client before disclosing the documents. It thought it was unrealistic to suppose that wouldn't happen. So if necessary, the client could seek an injunction to prevent disclosure. But the mere fact that a client says its privilege will be infringed by production doesn't excuse the auditor from producing the documents. So with that, I'll hand over to Maura, who's going to talk about a couple of cases on Without Prejudice Communications and also an update on disclosure. Thanks, Anna. So I'll start with the Without Prejudice rule, which of course means that communications genuinely aimed at settling a dispute are not admissible in evidence. It's often referred to as a form of privilege, but the rule operates quite differently from legal professional privilege in a number of respects, including that the protection it offers is not so absolute. It's subject to a number of established exceptions where WP communications will be admitted for particular purposes. And one of these exceptions arises where excluding the evidence would amount to avail for perjury, blackmail or other unambiguous impropriety, as it's referred to in the cases. And the courts have generally applied this exception quite narrowly. But there's an interesting illustration of the exception operating in practice in the Motorola Solutions and Hytera case. So in that case, during WP negotiations, the defendant had threatened to move its assets and structure its affairs in such a way as to frustrate enforcement of any judgment. 
and the High Court held that evidence of those threats should be admitted in support of the claimant's application for a freezing order to help establish a, a real risk of dissipation of assets. Um, the decision is also interesting because there was a, a factual dispute as to whether the threats had been made in the terms alleged. And the court said it didn't need to try to resolve that factual question at the interlocutory stage. The The question was really whether there was a, a plausible evidential basis that the statements had been made. So it, it seems it's a relatively low threshold in, in factual terms before the evidence will be admitted if it meets the test for unambiguous impropriety. The other case on WP that I want to mention is Barclays Square Holdings and Lancer, because it represents a, a development of another recognised exception to the rule, which is that evidence of WP communications is admissible to show that an agreement that was apparently concluded between the parties during the negotiations should be set aside for fraud. Now, in this case, the situation was the opposite in that the defendant wanted to rely on statements in a WP mediation paper to show not that there had been a fraud, but that the claimant had known all about and in fact approved the trans transactions that it now said were fraudulent. So really it wanted to use the evidence to rebut allegations of fraud. And the High Court said it would be contrary to principle if parties could rely on this exception to the WP rule in order to prove fraud, but they couldn't rely on it to defend themselves against allegations of fraud. So the WP material was admitted in evidence, and that seems to be a, a slight expansion to that exception to the rule. Moving on then to disclosure. Um, firstly, just an update on the disclosure pilot, which is underway in the business and property courts. It started in January 2019, as many of you will know, and it's due to run to the end of this year. The question of what happens next and whether the pilot will be extended or expanded at the end of the year was raised at an annual open meeting of the Civil Procedure Rule Committee in May, which I attended via Skype. Lord Justice Coulson, who chaired the meeting, said the committee was due to have an update on the progress of the pilot at its June meeting. But as far as he could tell, most people he thought had got used to the pilot and uh, it was working well. He said it would be for the business and property courts to ask for an, any extension uh, and the committee would consider that. But interestingly, he questioned whether the pilot would be rolled out to civil litigation more generally because disclosure under the pilot can be quite a major exercise, can be quite expensive and can front load costs and so may not be suitable for ordinary run-of-the-mill litigation as he described it. Now the June meeting will have taken place already but the minutes aren't yet available but I did see it's reported in the minutes of a commercial court users group meeting that was held last week that the pilot has been extended by a year so I guess uh, that means to the end of 2021. Uh, the minutes state that certain aspects of the pilot have attracted criticism and part of the reason for extending it is to have as good a data set as, as possible. So it looks like the pilot will be with us for um, at least a further year uh, after the end of this one. And presumably there will be further opportunities to give feedback in that period. Now, certainly our experience is that the pilot can significantly increase costs, particularly in complex cases where there are multiple parties because of the added complexity and, and, and just the hoops that need to be jumped through to comply with pilot procedures. So while I think there are positive aspects of the pilot, such as the added focus on identifying the issues where there really needs to be disclosure, we're not convinced the pilot is the answer to controlling the cost of disclosure. 
And finally, for me, putting aside the pilot, I just want to mention an interesting case on when a party is considered to have control over a, a third party's documents, which is important, of course, in the disclosure context, because the obligation to disclose depends on whether documents are in your control. The case is Pipia and BG Group, um, and it essentially gives a reminder that it's possible to have control over a third party's documents, even if you don't have an enforceable legal right to obtain the documents. It's sufficient if there's some arrangement or understanding that provides a, a right of access in practice, whether or not that's legally enforceable as a contract. Now, that's consistent with some previous cases that have, have taken a broad view on this issue and have adopted what you might call a de facto approach to the question of control rather than insisting on a, a strict legal right of access. So it, it seems that if there's a, a general history of cooperation and consent with a third party in, in providing documents, you, you may find that in the court's eyes, the, the, those documents are actually in your control. Now, I should say uh, that for these purposes, it's, it's not enough if the court just finds that the third party would probably agree to provide the documents if, if you ask them to. It seems there has to be something more than that, some sort of arrangement or, or understanding, though it doesn't have to be a, a strict legal right. Um, and, and this particular decision shows that the arrangement in question doesn't have to provide wholesale access to, to all of the third party's documents uh, in order to count as control for the purposes of disclosure. It seems it's quite possible to have an arrangement or, or understanding relating to a more restricted class of documents, in which case only, only those documents will be within your control. Now, applying those principles, the court found that there was a, a control arrangement in the present case um, because two of the defendant's subsidiaries had agreed to provide the defendant with all the documents pertaining to the claim as requested by the defendant or its advisors. And so that, the court said, was was sufficient to, to show that they were under the defendant's control. Um, interestingly, this arrangement had been put in place when the subsidiaries were co-defendants to the claim. But the court said the arrangement wasn't affected by the fact that the claim was discontinued against the subsidiaries. And although, of course, the arrangement could be terminated at any time, the judge commented that if, if it were to be terminated now, that would risk an inference being drawn by the court that the reason for that was because the subsidiaries held documents that would be unhelpful to the defendant's case. So it seems if the court thinks there has been a control arrangement uh, where a third party was happily providing access to its documents, but then that arrangement was ended, that could mean the court draws adverse inferences um, against you. And uh, th th that's obviously a point worth remembering. Um, equally, the decision suggested if you simply fail to make sensible requests for documents from a third party, that might also lead to adverse inferences either that the documents were in fact in your control and the reason you didn't ask for them is because you didn't want the third party to respond in a way that demonstrated that fact. Or there could even be an inference that you didn't ask for the documents because you thought they'd be unhelpful. Anyway, those were the only points I want to make on disclosure. Thanks, Maura. So, Ajay, you're going to finish off with a look at some cases on costs and funding. Thank you, Anna. I'll start off with two cases involving litigation funders. The first one is an important decision earlier this year called Chapelgate and Money, which clarified the extent to which a funder may be ordered to pay adverse costs. So it's been clear for some time that a third party who funds litigation on commercial terms may be ordered to pay the costs of the winning defendant if the funded claim is successful. 
But the Court of Appeals' 2005 decision in Arkin and Borchard was interpreted by many as setting a cap on that liability, the creatively named Arkin cap, so that the funder wouldn't be liable for more in terms of the defendant's costs than the funding it had provided to the claimant. The Arkin cap was the subject of much debate, both as to how broadly it applied and whether it remains appropriate in light of developments in the funding market since Arkin was decided. That debate has now been settled by the Court of Appeals decision in Chapelgate, which confirmed that the Arkin cap is not a binding rule. So in other words, it's not really a cap at all. The upshot is that the court retains a broad discretion as to the extent to which a funder should be liable for adverse costs. In exercising that discretion, it can take into account a range of factors, including the amount of funding put into the case, but not exclusively that. So the amount of funding provided is relevant, but it doesn't act as a cap. That's obviously good news for defendants who face claims brought with the benefit of litigation funding, including many defendants to class actions, which are often supported by litigation funders, although this case was actually not a class action. In many cases where commercial funders are involved, defendants may face significant practical difficulties in recovering costs from the claimants to the action. That may be because the claimants don't have sufficient assets, which is probably the reason for seeking funding in the first place. Or alternatively, in a group action context, it may be because the claimants will generally each be liable only for a portion of the defendant's costs if the claim fails. That's because the claimant's liability for adverse costs is ordinarily several rather than joint. So in those circumstances, unless there is sufficient ATE cover in place, and that cover responds when needed, the defendant may well look to the funder as its first port of call for cost recovery. In that context, my second case is significant in that it shows that the court have shown themselves willing to order security for costs against litigation funders. The case is Roe and Ingenious Media, and I should say that our firm is acting for one of the defendants in that case. The claim is being brought by over 500 individual claimants and the majority of the claims are funded by Therium Litigation Finance, which is a major litigation funder operating in the UK as well as elsewhere. The claims are being case managed together, although no group litigation order has been made. The claimants applied for and obtained an order that their potential liability for adverse costs should be several rather than joint as would have been the default position if there was a group litigation order in place. The order also provided that each claimant's liability should be prorated to the value of their individual claim rather than the liability being split equally between them. So the defendants applied for security for costs against Ethereum, and the judge said the most important question in considering the application was whether there was a real and not a fanciful risk that the defendants would not be paid if they obtained an adverse costs order in their favour. On this point, the judge thought it was striking that Therium, which is a Jersey incorporated entity, had provided no information in relation to its financial position. Therium had instead relied on the fact that it was a founding member of the Association of Litigation Funders of England and Wales and was subject to the Association's Code of Conduct in relation to 
capital adequacy requirements and had a track record of having been involved in over 50 cases without having defaulted on any adverse cost liability. The judge was, in my view, rightly not persuaded that this was sufficient to remove the risk to the defendants. The judge was also not persuaded that that the defendants would necessarily be able to recover their costs by having recourse to the claimant's own resources or to the ATE insurance that had been put in place. This was first because the amount of cover was insufficient and second because there was a real risk that the policies might not respond in certain circumstances. Therefore, he awarded security against the funders. I think that going forward, this will continue to be an important protection for defendants, particularly in group litigation, where they may have considerable hurdles to jump over over in trying to recover costs if the claim against them ultimately fails. Finally, I just wanted to quickly mention a couple of cases on the dangers of refusing to mediate. It is well established that an unreasonable refusal to engage in ADR may result in cost sanctions. In its 2004 decision in Halsey and Milton Keynes, the Court of Appeal set out a non-exhaustive list of factors that are relevant to determining whether a refusal is unreasonable. One of those factors is the merits of the case. However, the courts have generally set a high bar for when the strength of the case might be seen as justifying a refusal to mediate. Two recent cases which were quite similar in many respects illustrate that point, DSN and BXB. Both cases concerned claims for vicarious liability for sexual assault, and in both cases the master had issued an order in the standard form that the parties were to consider settling the litigation by any means of ADR. In both cases, the defendants were not willing to engage in ADR, in part on account of their belief in the strength of their case. But it seems the defendants were overconfident, as in fact the claims were successful. In both cases, the court ordered the defendants to pay indemnity costs, in part based on the refusal to engage in ADR. So those cases really just underline the limited relevance of the merits of the case in justifying a refusal to engage in ADR and the fact that you can end up with cost sanctions if the court finds you acted unreasonably, particularly if you lost it. The other case I wanted to mention in this vein was Wales and CBRE. Again, it was the defendant who refused to mediate, apparently because it thought mediation was premature before close of pleadings. It did later make some effort to settle by putting forward a without prejudice save as to costs offer, which was not accepted but then later refused another proposal to mediate, saying there was not sufficient time to prepare. Unlike in the DSN and BXB cases, the defendant in this case was successful, but the court still deprived it of a significant proportion of its costs. So the bottom line is that you can be penalised in costs if the court finds you have unreasonably refused to mediate, whether you won or lost the case. Thank you, Ajay. That's the end of today's podcast. We'll be back with another edition in a couple of months. Thank you to Maura and to Ajay and to all of you for listening.